Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. Do you long for the church to have greater influence in our world? Do you want to know how the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12.28 are supposed to function? Doug's candid and insightful conversation with Dr. Joseph Matera will give you some clarity and confidence that God is up to something good, and His plans include us. Listen in, lean in, and learn. After the episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit awardandseasonpodcast.org. You can download a free 30-day devotional that will encourage you to draw closer to the Lord. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Share this message with a friend and subscribe for weekly encouragement and inspiration. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. We have such a vacuum of courageous and godly leaders today, regardless if it's George Barna or if it's James Dobson. Various people have said anywhere from 1,500 to 1,900 pastors, ministry leaders leave the ministry every month just in America alone, and it's way too much. And then it's compounded and exasperated by the global pandemic the last couple of years, discouragement. As I've always said, leaders don't set out to say, I can't wait to fail. But somewhere along the line, just like with Dr. Robert Clinton, who identified that 70% of Christian leaders do not finish the race well, historically, and we see it for various reasons, but I don't think anyone sets out to sin or to compromise or to be discouraged or to quit, but distractions and unexpected detours happen in life. But we need more than ever. We need courageous and godly leaders like never before. I believe that you helped to address that quite a bit in our friendship, of course, in our partnerships and the various things that we're connected to together. Tell us a little bit about your history. How did you come into the revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection? How did you come to know Christ? My grandmother probably prayed me into the kingdom. She was the first ordained woman, Hispanic leader in New York City history. She had to leave her husband who was committing adultery. I don't know what happened. They got divorced. The Catholic Church rejected her in the 1920s because she was divorced and she was in the streets crying. And she heard the music coming from a Pentecostal storefront church. And she went inside and they welcomed her. And she wound up, you know, getting saved. And within a few years, she started a church in Lower Manhattan. And she was quite the entrepreneur and she wound up accumulating, I don't know how she did it financially, but she bought three huge apartment buildings and then she would house the homeless, preach, and she prayed three hours a day, preached on the streets three hours a day until she was well into her 70s, passed away when she was about 82. And the last year or two of her life, she saw me come to faith. She would always give me a Bible, a little uh, New Testament. We would see her every Mother's Day. She didn't speak a word of English. She only spoke Spanish. And she just kept telling me, Jesucristo de amo, and would give me a Bible every year. And I never read it. I thought she was crazy because all she talked about was Jesus. That being said, my mother, because of the legalism of early Pentecostalism, never really gave her life to Christ until I was about 16, and she saw nuns and priests in a meeting in Syracuse, New York, with Father John Bartolucci, who was a great, great Catholic preacher. The nuns and priests said that even though they were in this faith as a living, as nuns and priests, they didn't know Jesus until they came to Christ and were born again, and they, they were speaking in tongues, praising God. 
And so when my mother saw that, she came forward, gave her life to Christ. And that was part of what we might have called back in the 70s, the Catholic renewal and the renewal yes. in Methodists and Lutherans and so on. Yeah, well, the Catholic charismatic renewal in those right. days were filling stadiums with 50, right. 100,000 people. So my mother had uh, been the recipient of that movement and came to Christ, came to faith. And I was 16 and I saw a change in her and I started going to church every once in a while, but I was on my way to making it big and as a rock musician and professional guitar player. I had a lot of people following me. I had, you know, my pick of girlfriends and I was very, very popular. It wasn't until I was about 19 years old that I just felt so empty. I wasn't on drugs. I wasn't down and out. I had incredible offers on the table. I was in three bands, had my own studio. I just was empty. I just needed a sense of purpose and music and partying and friends couldn't do it for me. And my friends had no idea I was feeling this way inside because I was the life of the party. And, you know, nobody had any idea that inside I was really empty. And I'd go home at night, stare at the stars in the sky after jamming or playing a gig and I'd say, there's got to be more to life than this. And so I went with my mother to a full gospel businessmen's convention in January of uh, 1978. Demas Shikarian was there. It was, uh, I think I said it was in Washington, D.C. And lo and behold, you know, I went into the lobby and I had prayed for the money to go there. My mother wanted to give me the money and our band was struggling in that season and it cost 85 bucks. And I told my mother, if God is real, he'll give me the 85 bucks. And three days before New Year's Eve, we got a call that we got a gig on New Year's Eve for $85 a person. So with that, I went to this convention. Now, back, I, in, back in the 70s, $85 for a gig is probably quite a bit of money. Yeah, it'd be like 500 a piece now. And I told my mother, you know, I wanted to go see if these Christians were real offline. You know, I want to hang out with young Christians, uh, young people, meaning. And that's why I went with her to this convention. And then after two days, I got offended by something uh, with my uncle. I don't remember what it was. And I was on my way out the door, taking Amtrak back home, 19-year-old, hard rocker, long hair, black leather jacket, very uh, staunch and filled with pride. I was about to go, and then I prayed in the lobby, and I said, Lord, if this born-again stuff is real, please send someone now to me and share the gospel with me. And I waited and waited and waited. 20 minutes I waited. Nobody came, so I said, okay, I'm leaving. This isn't real. And as I was walking out the door, something inside of me, an impression, said, go back to where you were sitting. I made my way back with my bit of luggage. And right before I sat down in the same chair, a young man, my age, my height, even looked like me. His name was Michael Pieri. He came up to me and he said, are you saved? I said, I don't know. He said, if you don't know, then you're not. Come with me. I said, where are we going? He said, I'm taking you out to dinner so I could share the gospel. I said, who sent you? He said, God sent me to show you the way of salvation. So he took me to a restaurant in proximity to the hotel, might have even been in the hotel. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to receive Christ after sharing the gospel. And I said, yes. And that the rest is history. That was January 10th, 1978. Consequently, I've lost touch with him. I don't know if he's still alive. I wish I could see Michael Pieri again. But that one act of obedience resulted in everything that has transpired the last 44 years. 
Uh, we'll pray that, that you'll find uh, and reconnect there because that's definitely a part of your legacy and landmark history of someone being obedient enough to come share their faith with you. And as a result, I wonder if he even knows how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have been impacted by the ministries that you're connected to and the things that you've been able to be a part of. So tell us a little bit about what you've done and how you've been in ministry now, what, 40 years? Six months after I came to Christ, I laid down my guitar I quit all my bands, and I was so excited that the first time in my life I had peace. I was so impressed with the peace of God because I never had peace, and I was infatuated with the Bible. I just, instead of practicing the guitar six to eight hours a day, I read the Bible six, 12 hours a day. I was so overwhelmed with the love of God that I went on the New York City subway trains and I started giving my testimony, and uh, the Holy Spirit would fall on that train. The power of God would fall even when they would try to do gangbangers with ghetto blasters trying to laugh and mock and put the radio on really loud, and then the anointing would fall. They would shut the radio. People would get saved. Even police officers came. They wanted tracks. Uh, I'd go from one car to the next, Next thing you know, I had 10 young men from the church going with me, and I didn't realize I was actually making disciples. And then uh, we graduated to the Staten Island Ferry, a ferry boat that ferries several thousand people from Brooklyn to Staten Island. And so I went on the ferry, and I had 22 minutes before it hit Staten Island. So I preached, gave my testimony. Thousands of people heard the word three times a week. The Spirit of God would fall and... Uh, so I actually started in the ministry by just going on the streets, on the trains. I never had formal training in preaching, and my pastor didn't even know my name. He had no idea what I was doing. And next thing you know, the pews again filled up with 20, 30, 40 people coming to church from all the evangelism I was doing. And then a revival broke out in my old neighborhood because I was still a famous musician, and I did a concert, gathered about at least 70 to 100 to watch in a park. And I had a young guy from the church preach the gospel after we did the blues, and the guy did awful. He didn't know how to preach and relate to the urban context, and he was preaching very religious language like, and Jesus became the propitiation for our sins so that we might be justified. I mean, that kind of preaching, and my friends were smoking pot, drinking beer, and laughing at him. I took the mic, and I said, oh, Lord, this, I don't want to waste my time, and I just started sharing my testimony, and the Spirit of God fell, and about 17 ran up to the front, in front of each other. It was amazing. A revival broke out in my old neighborhood, Many people got saved. Uh, we didn't have a church in those days, so they just went to different churches in the neighborhood. But uh, yeah, an incredible move of God broke out in that so area. So a couple of great points there. I think that many of us that are leaders on this call and others can relate to the fact that when we first got called, it wasn't like, okay, let's get called. Let's go and learn how to transliterate Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic and Arcadian. As Keith Green used to say, bananas for Jesus. And I used to say, you just get goo goo gaga for Jesus. The idea was there was something about when you overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony that there was power in that there was that corporate anointing of God that just came when we were just on fire for God. Just that pure, precious life of love for God in our early days. And of course, many of us went out preaching on the streets and trying to win souls in restaurants and on the streets at rock concerts, wherever we could go. I think many of us have those similar stories. At the same time, it always comes back, even after all we've learned all these years, 
It's the simplicity of the gospel. We can learn a lot and we can know a whole lot in our minds, but we can't forget the simplicity of the power of the gospel in all that you're doing. And I'm going to come back to this because I feel like we should talk a little bit about some of the things God's allowed you to do in pastoring is also the coalitions that you have. Just coming back and speaking to heads of state in Lebanon and other places. What took you from that journey in the beginning to where you are today? Some of the things you've been able to do, and then come back and talk about if there have been areas of your life, just like anyone else, you felt like quitting. You just said, you know what? I can't do this. I just wanted to preach the gospel. And this is so much more than I wanted to do. How God took you from those early days into what you're doing today. I wound up getting married at the age of 21, met my wife in a small group. We were in a large Pentecostal charismatic church, probably the largest in the Northeast. I had about 3,000 members. And so my pastor didn't know who I was. We wound up getting married and we took our wedding money and God uh, told us to go right during or after the Moscow Olympics, because the whole world would be there. And we went to evangelize and we financed a six-week trip to, I think now it's called St. Petersburg, but it was Leningrad, Kiev, which is the center of controversy now in the Ukraine with Russia standing off against the U.S. So we were there and then also Moscow. And all I did was preach. I learned Russian when I got there enough to preach on the streets. But a lot of where we tried to go the most was in the universities. They all spoke English. And we saw signs and wonders. We saw many people get saved, smuggled Bibles inside. My wife and I, you know, just had an incredible encounter with God out there. When we came back, the Lord told me, don't go back to work. I was working in a restaurant because I quit music. He said, I just want you to preach full time. And that's all I did. I preached. Next thing you know, my pastor found out about me. I was shown the cross and the switchblade because the neighborhood we were in was destroyed with gangs and drugs and violence, abandoned buildings everywhere. They even made a movie about it called Sunset Park. I remember one summer I got permits, worked with the police department and the community board, got 50% of each block to give me the okay. And I'd show this cross and the switchblade 37 times in my neighborhood. Every time when the, the movie ended, we'd have 70 to 100 people. And almost every one of them got saved. It was like a Charles Finney book. The power of God would fall and whole blocks would get saved. And we saw incredible revival and awakening taking place in Sunset Park. And we saw the whole community transformed within 10 or 12 years without gentrification, but that's another story, because uh, the gospel of the kingdom lifts whole communities, not just individual sinners. And so there's a lot of fasting, praying, a lot of warfare, witches and warlocks were trying to destroy us. My pastor found out about me, took me under his wing, started training me, licensed me, and sent me out to start a church about three years later when I was 25. That's Resurrection Church. It's now about 38 years old. And we sent out, you know, other leaders and started other churches. So when I first started, I didn't know enough of the word or theology. So the only thing I could do was evangelize and give my testimony. When I started growing a little bit, I went from just a pure evangelist to an evangelist prophet. Eventually, I started traveling as a prophet in the early 90s, did prophetic presbytery, things like that. And then in 1993, I stepped into the apostolic when I went to another country, and the Lord showed me to, I was supposed to teach a school of the prophets 
He gave me a whole teaching on the apostolic and unity. And next thing you know, after I did that seminar, a whole network was born and it became the largest pastoral network in that country for many, many years. Bishop Mater, on that, there's a lot of terminology about the apostolic. I know that there has been a lot of misunderstandings, but you've been able to, along with myself and others, have tried to emphasize that we're not talking about capital A, like somehow top ruling down, but it really is the church is built on the foundations of the apostle and the prophets, and it's really building up. It's uplifting people. It's helping to create an environment by which is conducive for people to take the gospel forward. In your connection now with the United States Council of Apostolic Leaders that you come into, you've actually helped change some of that understanding to where even now evangelical organizations, global ones, are beginning to understand it's not just some weird charismatic term or some uh, flaky kind of authoritative type of organizations. It really is about function. It's not about title, but function. As you finish your story, transition a little bit into what that means, because so many people have a business card say, I'm apostle so-and-so, or I'm prophet so-and-so. And, but I think it's important for people to understand it's not about title, it's about function, how we function by the calling of God in our lives, and it helps to empower the kingdom to advance and people to grow. Well, using myself as an illustration, as you mature in your faith, your fivefold ministry expression will change. And so the first thing I could do is just evangelize. Then, you know, the prophetic was developed. So it was more of a prophet evangelist. And then as I developed even more, and connecting to with true apostolic leaders in the country that rubbed off on me. And then I was able to launch an apostolic network in the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo. But that only illustrates that, you know, as you continue on with the Lord, some of the latent gifts or the potentialities of your calling will come out and come forth where your focus will change. You see that with Paul the Apostle. He was he started off as an evangelist, an apologist. Uh, then he was called a prophet or a teacher in Acts 13, and next thing you know, he was sent out as an apostle. So we can go through these transmutations from one gift to the next. Uh, in terms of the apostolic, I always looked at it as a function or an adjective. Only the first 12 were the capital A apostles. So I was always against religious hierarchical titular ecclesial structures. Uh, I just look at Christianity as a way of life. I hate religion. I think a lot of people get so hung up on titles that they lose some of their humanity and they become mystical or they become super spiritual or right, self-righteous. And when you see the way Jesus and Paul and the apostles walked, it was a way of life. And so that's what we're trying to bring back to the church, to go back to the first century pattern of the way of Christ and his apostles. Well, something you said too about uh, Paul the apostle, that uh, he was an apostle, but he, even of himself, he said, a bondservant. And so an apostle meaning a servant, not necessarily a hierarchical, this is my title, you have to cower to me, or you have to be subservient to me. It's more of an authority that God gives us to walk out a function, and it is to serve the body of Christ. Absolutely. And, you know, Paul didn't say Apostle Paul, he said Paul and Apostle. So right. Apostle described the function. That's why we changed the name of ICAL from ICA, International Coalition of Apostles, to the International Coalition of Epstock Leaders. And we started USCAL like that. Yeah, so we're getting a broader audience from leaders in the World Evangelical Alliance, Lausanne, probably multitudes of others. 
that we're not even aware of. But if we would have stuck to a top-down autocratic hierarchical apostolic structure, focusing on the title apostle, we would have never been able to have an audience with the broader body, and we would have missed an opportunity to help shape the evangelical church and take it from a mere pastoral wineskin to an apostolic wineskin, which is really what I'm really focused on the most now. As we've transitioned these last two years, I've been sensing so strongly that it's not a year-to-year renewal type thing or a New Year's resolution. I've felt like the last few years, we were coming into a new season. What's the redemptive plan of God for the church in the midst of all the shakings that have been going on, the challenges? What do you sense now is the redemption of God in the midst of these transitional seasons that we're in? The global South is closer to the first century model of the church than at any time in human history. We also have the ability to have one united church uniting the African continent, the European North American, the Asian continent together. We're more collaborative, more dialogue going on now than in any point since the first three centuries. So it's an exciting time. The apostolic movement, whether people use the title or not, the great movements led by visionaries who could garner followers and co-leaders that are in this same region, uh, that is the kind of Christianity that is sweeping the earth, resulting in great evangelism, prayer movements, church planning like we've never seen before. So the apostolic is the largest and fastest growing expression of the church right now. And that's why so many missiologists, evangelicals are trying to study this. As a matter of fact, at the recent ICAL gathering, the religious head of religious history at Baylor University had dinner with me. He said he's been studying me and John Kelly and the movement, and he's writing a book on it. And they were very open to everything, the whole apostolic, the charismatic movement. So this thing is spreading like crazy, even in North America. And there are many expressions of the apostolic. Not everybody who is classified in the so-called apostolic movement is working together. And so Peter Wagner coined the phrase as a missiologist called the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And you have, unfortunately, some people think that's a global conspiracy to take over the church. Well, there is no global conspiracy. There is no NAR that is an umbrella for all of the apostles. And there are numerous apostolic networks, even in North America, where the leaders don't even know each other. So they're all classified in the so-called NAR. Which basically uh, came from the name of a book you wrote. Yeah. You always have the antagonists who are going to try to find something against certain other people in the body that they don't agree with. So I remember getting lumped into that and thinking there is no such thing as NAR. You, you can identify certain people that maybe adhere to a relationship because of that book, but there's no conspiracy, no organization called NAR. Yeah. That would be a big miracle if you could get everybody under one umbrella. That would be the greatest miracle since the resurrection. You can't even get pastors to talk together who are in the same community, never mind a global conspiracy of apostles. But anyway, I'm being a little facetious there to make a point, but there is no global conspiracy, but there is a heavenly conspiracy of changing and transforming the church. And as uh, Gamaliel said, if this is of God, you can't fight it, right? So it's just happening all over the world. It's exciting. People have rejected some of the earlier forms of the restoration or primitive movement, as some call it, that started with the latter rain movement. Every new restoration movement has excesses and mistakes, and some of that 
has been abuse in the apostolic. People have used the term apostle as a title. They have tried to have authority over other people in their community. They have been hierarchical and titular and had a top-down strategy. Some have been uh, linked together in what they would call a dominionist kind of thing of just forcing everyone to convert and having a theocracy in the world. And so there is baggage with the apostolic, but there's baggage with teachers and pastors and evangelists. We've had false prophets. Does that mean nobody should prophesy? We've had false teachers. Out of all the fivefold ministry gifts, the one we have the most problem with historically is false teachers, right? Uh, so that doesn't mean we stop teaching. And so what we've done in U.S. Cal is we tried to correct some of the abuses admit that they've happened, admit when we're falling, have conversations with people against the quote-unquote NAR, develop friendships, even with non-charismatics, and let them see, hey, we know church history. You know, we do have theologians in our midst. This is not just the signs and wonder feelings crowd. And we do have substantive things to say. Matter of fact, my next book is almost 500 pages. It's going to be published by the University that gave me a THD uh, recently, Antioch University, and they have hundreds of thousands of students all over the world. They're going to try to get my book out there, and it deals with the history of the epistock movement from the first century and tracing what happened from the latter rain movement to till today, some of our challenges, some of our theological challenges, some of our practitioner challenges. Uh, so I deal with all that and even talk about how to create an apostolic movement locally or nationally or internationally and give a history of ICAL and things like that. I think the best days of the church are ahead. That being said, the last two years have been the most challenging uh, times of leadership most of us have ever seen. Personally, I don't think going to go away in 2023. I think we're going to have another rough challenging year. And the word that I'm getting is be faithful, cultivate faithfulness, perseverance. Don't be discouraged if you don't have all the results right away. You know, hang in there because God is using this season, as you said, I would agree, it's a season as a pruning and also sifting between the wheat and the chaff, between the true church and the remnant church. So as hard as it is, it is necessary for God to have a bride that is without spot and blemish and that could represent him in the world. The last few months of 2021, I start to process as we all do and take some fastidious time and prayer time. And I remember on December 31st, I was sitting in my backyard having a cup of coffee, had my Bible on my lap. And I just said, Lord, I need a breakthrough. And then I said, Lord, we need a breakthrough. And what I was sensing was that it was really a cry for the body. And I was just saying, God, we need a breakthrough. And then I began to process that God is the master of the breakthroughs, the Baal Perizim. He is the one, the breaking forth of the waters. He is the one that is the, the one that gives us breakthroughs. I began to think of all the breakthroughs and what it takes to have a breakthrough. And, and so I won't get into all that because I shared that on a podcast earlier this month. But I really feel like we're at a place that God himself has to be the one who gives the breakthrough. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 20, God says, I will do the battle for you. I'm the one doing the battle. The battle is not yours. And uh, it's so true that we have got to get to the place of realizing that We've tried to do a lot in our own strength, but the battle is the Lord's. What we need to do is align ourselves with God in his word, in his character, nature, and spirit. In fact, I was looking at 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 9, I believe, and it says, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence 
for your name is in this temple and cry out to you in our afflictions and you will hear and save. And I was just processing how the enemy is trying so hard to divide and conquer the church and to get us away from the place of worshiping God and the place of gathering together in corporate worship and prayer. And yet they're saying, look, in the midst of all that goes on, in all the difficulties in life, that this is the place. It's the place of God's temple. We, of course, are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in the purity purity of, of heart and to be holy, even as he is holy by God's grace, not by the works of our flesh. But at the same time, there's something about individual pruning and uh, the place of our reevaluating our own lives and assessing our own lives and just surrendering to God, that there's something about corporately gathering these, all of us temples of the Holy Spirit gathering together in agreement through fasting, through prayer, through worship that brings breakthrough because God is the one, is the master of our breakthrough. And then I began to look at some of the things he said in verse 14, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon, and he talks about the Spirit of the Lord came upon, and it says, thus says, Lord, don't be afraid or dismayed because of the great multitude, because the battle is not yours, it is God's. And it goes on to kind of lay out some of the prerequisites. One is the place of communication with God, prayer. The other is a place of setting things in order in worship. That's that we are living worshipers, offering ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God the place of intercession, the place of praise going before the battle. Then God sends out praise as he did with the tribe of Judah, setting forth praise before the battle is even won. God has already won the battle and setting us out in praise. And I began to think about all these things and the importance of our posture is critical for God to be able to take the battle and win the battle because the battle is his. But what are some of the things you're sensing as well as we move into this next season? Because there's some challenging times ahead. We can't just look at it like, oh, everything's going to be great and perfect. But at the same time, I think that God has done some incredible things in the midst of the most difficult of times in the last couple of years. As you have said, the church is more connected around the world. There's been a new wine skin for the new wine that God has been pouring out. There has been supernatural expansion in some ways by divine intervention in the midst of the difficulties we've been facing. What are the advantages of working together with the whole collective of the fivefold ministry or five cluster gifts, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, and evangelist, is that some of them are always looking at challenges as an opportunity and have the ability to problem solve, especially the apostle as the entrepreneur, the pioneer, the prophet has the ability to understand the trends in the future and what God is saying and doing like the sons of Issachar. And the evangelists, you know, love, they thrive when things aren't going well because people are more open to the gospel and they get people saved. And so it's important that we hear from God through this collective that God has given us in the church and also in spiritual leadership. Uh, I think that's happening more and more. I believe that we have to get to a place where it's not just fasting and praying. I love fasting and praying. And some of the church thinks it's just about fasting and praying and waiting for a revival and awakening. But that posture is everything is on God and not on us. Paul calls us co-laborers. We were made in God's image. So the charismatics sometimes don't know that they have to do a lot of studying. They have to get their hands dirty. They have to be involved in understanding culture, understanding the new economic trends like the blockchain and cryptocurrencies is the next wave. Where Where's the church there, you know? And new technologies. So many of the churches were caught off guard when the pandemic hit, but uh, we should have been 
on the leading edge of the internet and utilizing technology, not think that it's just, let's just pray and fast, or these things are of the devil or distractions, what the devil meant for a distraction, God could use to perpetuate the gospel. So I do believe I fast and pray a lot, and I believe in revival and awakening, but it's not just that. We're made in the image of God, and we're partners together with God, and we need to discern what He's saying and doing and work hard at it. Whatever our right hand finds to do, do it with all its might. We have to work, 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 study, 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 plan, 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 strategize, but primarily seek the face of God. And as we seek the face of God, and even take long durations of time alone and fasting and praying or corporately and combine that with a collective effort to be on the cutting and leading edge as co-creators and fellow workers together with God, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6. My God, wow, how powerful that'll be. I love the quote by Charles Finney when he says that a revival is no more a miracle than a crop of wheat. What I love about that is that the miracle is not in the planting of the seed, but that's what we do in taking our steps of faith. We plant the seed, we water, we fertilize, we till the ground. The miracle is what happens with the seed once we do our part to plant the seed, and that is that the miracle is in the seed, what God does to take root beneath the surface. As you said, we have to take that step. Even with, with Abraham, when he took a step of faith, he went and did not know where he was going, but he took a step. It takes one step, and then another step, and another step, but God does the supernatural expansion and the divine intervention when we take those steps of faith. Of course, obviously, to the pure, all things are pure, so our hearts uh, and motives must, you know, must be aligned with God. It's not out of false motivation. It's not for self-adulation or it's not for self-absorption. It is about a heart after God and to love for people that if we take those steps and put our hands to the plow and don't look back, God can do something with our steps of obedience. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. You know, what hard work a farmer has with plowing the ground and seeding the ground and working day and night before to prepare for the harvest, right? He didn't just pray and ask God to give him an abundant crop. And that's how it is with us. We're co-creators. We're made in the image of God. And we have to be on the leading edge of what God is saying and doing and look at every challenge as an opportunity for God to get glory somehow by utilizing our gifts, by redeeming the time, and by understanding the purpose of what's going on now. There's a great decentralization. People who depended upon huge buildings a lot of them are going out of business because they weren't making disciples. They don't have a core. They had a crowd. If we don't get back to the way of Christ and his apostles, there's going to be a continual deconstruction and pruning of the church. God is not impressed with how many people show up on Sunday. He's impressed with how many you send out on Monday to infiltrate every aspect of society. He's impressed with the people who are disciples, who are disciplined, focused followers of Jesus, who set the Lord always before them. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but it means that they prioritize Christ in every aspect of their life. It's not just the Sunday experience, you know, and there's so much biblical illiteracy right now. All the Bible apps, Bible Project, audio Bibles, so many Christians, you know, they think that uh, their walk is just listening to Pandora, putting on hill songs, singing some songs, going to church, feeling good, and the way people are living, they're cohabitating. So many of the young evangelicals are having premarital sex. They don't even think there's anything wrong with it. I'm sure a lot of them are already smoking pot 
and there's probably, if it's not already public, I've been saying this for five years, soon there'll be pastors smoking pot on Instagram and telling people that, you know, they're not bound by legalism anymore because as pot becomes legal, the prohibition is lifted and it's going to be culturally accepted eventually because it's legally accepted. So you have this Christianity light that we see today and God is deconstructing it. And you know what? Some churches have to close. And this is me personally, but I've been saying it too for quite some time. And I was jokingly saying that in some of these states, as they begin to legalize marijuana smoking and and not just for medicinal use, but for recreational use, that we would start seeing some pastors that want to be hip and cool and acceptable. uh, And they'll begin to say that now that it's legal, that we don't want to be legalist. I I appreciate you saying that because we've seen that already happen, actually, in some places, including in Colorado, where there have been people already doing that, having Bible study parties. It has started years ago with, let's have a Jack Daniels and have a Bible study. You know, we're, we're free. You know, our freedom should not be, and our, and our liberty should not become a license, and it should not also create an, a license to, and a failure for others who may not be able to handle our liberties. And sure enough, you begin to see some churches build around those kinds of things. And I think we've gotten away from the institution has tried to be relatable to the culture rather than the church changing the culture. Leonard Ravenhill once wrote a book called Sodom Had No Bible. And I remember him sharing with me a few times saying the church in the early church turned the world upside down. They didn't have the Bible like we have today in all the translations and concordances and all the seminaries and Bible schools, yet they turned their world upside down. Today, we have all the stuff, so to speak, but we've not turned our world upside down. I think so often we've built on the institution rather than in the incarnational authentic relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth himself. And if we come back to that relationship in that place of the authentic respect and the fear of God, then I believe God can do something with us and anoint us and commission us to turn our world upside down. But until we see a generation of people rise up, not to go with the status quo, but to say, Lord, I don't want to be like the world. Alan Redpath and Linda Ravenhill were on Chapel of the Air one time, and they were talking about how many people leave the world to go to the church and find the, the world in the church. They said, well, why don't we just go back to the world? And so we've got to get back to being more than just an inch deep. We need to be deep in the Lord and to say, God, it's not about me. It's about you. I want you, God. As I used to be in the fitness business, I'd say no pain, no gain. Lord, make it hurt so good. I just want to be able to grow in you, Lord, and to be able to be what you want me to be. Even if my flesh doesn't want it, I'm not saved by the justification of the flesh. I'm saved by being justified in faith. And I I want to have faith in God that he can lead me and guide me through the detours of this life, the maneuvering through life, the challenges in life, but I can't do that according to the flesh. I need the presence of God. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can't agree more. What's the website people can go to to find out more about Joseph Matera Ministries? Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, Matera, M-A-T-T-E-R-A, dot org. And there are 13 books. There are about 2,000 articles. There are training videos. There's an Institute for Apostolic Leadership. There's just a lot of resources. So the good news is you get a free article every week. Last week, for example, the article was, if everybody was as committed as you are, would Christianity survive? And I got into, you know, if everyone gave the way you gave, if everyone volunteered the way you volunteered, if everybody prayed the way you prayed, if everybody came to church as often as you did, would your church survive? Tomorrow, I'm releasing an article, Seven Signs You've Been Infected with the Leaven of Herod. 
Nobody talks about the leaven of Herod. They talk about the leaven of the Pharisees. So I get into what the leaven of Herod is. Those kind of articles come out every week. But if you want access to all of the articles of the past, it's a membership fee. It's a very small amount. And you have access to 2,000 articles, but you have access to three weeks of articles for free every week. Is there a particular time in your process of ministry where you wanted to just say, Lord, I can't do this anymore? as so many of us have. And how did you overcome those obstacles? How did you overcome by the blood of the lamb? The more responsibility you have, the harder it is. The higher the level of spiritual warfare and resistance, as you can see from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you're not in war, then you're a civilian and you're mingling too much with the world. That's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2. A lot of times I feel like quitting or I feel like, man, I don't think I could do this anymore. There was a period of time not long ago where I was battling depression because of all my responsibilities. And every morning I would have to pray two or three hours in tongues and listen to scripture just to get by the day. And every day I get filled with the spirit, get filled with faith, but then I'd have to start all over again. This went on for three years. I just had so much I was managing. I had to come back to lead a local church. Um, and at the same time, we had just launched US Cal. I have material ministries. I have a private network. And it just, it was hard, man. Even dealing with anxiety attacks sometimes when I go to church because I was afraid of what I'd be facing sometimes. So I, I went through that for several years from probably 2015 to 2018. And the only reason why I was able to continue to function is because I spent a lot of time with God. You know, by God's grace, I'm more motivated by knowing Jesus than ministry or anything else in my life. So I can't imagine living without walking into the portals of God's word regularly and walking in his presence and plumbing the depths of his being and knowing God. That to me is the greatest joy and the thing I'm motivated to do every day. The thing I think about, the thing I'm motivated the most is pouring over that word, spending time with God. If it wasn't for that, I couldn't have made it. I'll be honest. It was also a period of time after we started the church within a few years where Everybody I trusted betrayed me in one year. The foundations of my life, of the church, were shaken. I was battling inside incredible trauma, but I still had a function. I still had a family. I still had to preach. I still had, I didn't have anybody who could take my place. It wasn't part of a network. I couldn't even take two weeks off. Even the person that was supposedly my apostle was lying about me behind my back, tried to take the church from me. And if it wasn't for me walking in the gifts of the word of knowledge and word of wisdom, I wouldn't have uncovered it. And I, I began moving in the word of knowledge, telling my elders what this guy was doing and saying, and they were shocked. They'd break down crying and supernaturally God defended me. And we got this guy out of our church eventually, out of our circle. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, it's no easy road, but you know, as it says in Proverbs, the way of a transgressor is hard. It's going to be hard without God as well. It might as well be really difficult while God is on your side fighting your battles and getting glorified and having an eternal kingdom to live for instead of temporarily living for the pleasures of sin, which only last a season, leave you empty, dry, and separated from God for eternity. So there's only two choices, choose life. I think that even the example you just gave about 
someone who was supposed to be an apostolic covering in your church, you've seen the flip side, the downside of those who say they're apostles and are not, or they are functioning in a wrong spirit rather than serving. So you've had to process all of that to come to the lessons that God's given you, life lessons on your view of what the correct apostolic leadership is. Would you take a moment to pray for all the leaders that will be viewing portions of this, but also those who will be listening on the podcast? Father, we thank you for our family. We know that the church is a family of families, that God is our Father. We thank you, God, that no matter what comes before us, greater is the one in us than he that is in the world, that you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. If God be for us, who could be against us? He who spared not his only son, how much more will he also freely with him give us all things? And so, Father, we thank you that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, things to come, nor anything in all creation shall be able to separate us from your love. So because of that, we have faith. Because of that, we have hope and we have promise. And we believe, oh God, that all things work together for good. We believe that there's a purpose and that you redeem us from all evil, as Jacob said, and that no matter what 2022 brings to us, we thank you that we are more than conquerors through Christ, not through ourselves. So, Father, we pray for the spirit of grace and power and faith and boldness, problem-solving, strategy, and entrepreneurship and multiplication be bestowed upon everyone who hears this podcast. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.